strange uh, kind of incongruity I'm feeling right now. On one hand, I feel like we should have just sung conjunction, junction, what's your function with that background. And then we have, you know, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. They, you know, it's kind of a strange interaction between what we're looking at and uh, what our background is. Um, it's an interesting passage. It's an unusual passage. Uh, it's one of those psalms that we kind of go, what do you do with something like this? And I hope we will have a better sense by the end of our time this morning. Uh, but before we continue, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, you, uh, you hear our hearts. Uh, we do not need to mask ourselves before you because you already see us completely. And you speak to us and you give us words to say back to you, words uh, for when we are joy-filled, words for when we are filled with anguish, and even words like this morning for when we have anger. Uh, Lord, in every way, in all aspect of who we are, we want to be renewed. We want to be made more like Jesus, made whole. And we know that only happens through your power. So we pray even now this morning as we consider your word, would you please speak powerfully to us, renewing us. Help me to speak faithfully and clearly in accordance with your word that you would be pleased and that your church would be strengthened. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have been following the news at all, you'll know that it's been a rather interesting week. There has been some kind of convention thing going on in Cleveland, apparently. And, and if you're following the news, you'll know that there has been a lot of stuff that is being spoken about, how there was issues of potential plagiarism and betrayal within the party and massive disorganization. And perhaps the culmination, as is always the case for any kind of political convention, there was the final speech spoken by the nominee, in this case, of course, Donald Trump. And by any accounts, the speech uh, was extraordinary. For one thing, it was extraordinarily long, 75 minutes for anyone who was able to listen to a speech that long. But, but more provocatively, I think more significant was the tone. If, if you watch it, you will know that the tone was filled with anger, right? There, you know, there was a kind of a sense of rage, the top of his voice, there was a yelling because of this anger that was being tapped into. But even with that anger, if you were listening carefully, you know that the speech contained elements of, of fear. Because there's enemies all around. That was the underlying theme. There are enemies all around that we need to deal with. Enemies such as other nations, such as terrorists, Enemies such as incompetent government, maybe especially the Democrats. Enemies everywhere. That's how the speech put things. We are surrounded by enemies. And whatever we want to think of Donald Trump, he is tapping into something. People responded to that speech. You could see it in the crowds because we are in a day and age where people feel that way. There is anger. There is fear. We have enemies all around us. Enemies is a strange word, isn't it? I mean, when you think about, like, do I have enemies? At least for me, I think with the word enemy, I think of, you know, stuff of Marvel superheroes and Star Wars. Enemies just sound so fiction. But, but enemies really is a practical word. When we have been wronged 
by someone, where we feel attacked, and that person is at odds with us, we, we know what it is to have, at least for that time, an enemy, someone we feel is out to get us. The question is, what do we do with enemies? What is our response when we face enemies around us? Now, we heard the answer Thursday. The answer is to win, right? We want to win against everything, especially our enemies. And, of course, the, the clear text was, and the way we do that is by voting for this certain nominee. But I'd like to suggest that we have, in our passage, a different answer. See, Psalm 83 actually has a lot in common with where that speech was coming from. It, it's tapping into a very similar mood because it also has a deep awareness of enemies, of threats all around. Perhaps you noticed in verse 3, for example, we see they lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. There is a conspiracy and we're ready to be attacked is what he's saying. And that attack is terrifying. What is it that he's afraid of? Well, verse 4, they say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. There are enemies who want to commit genocide, who want to destroy every single Israelite, mother, father, children, so much so that people can't even remember them in two generations. It's a terrifying reality. And who is it that's going to be doing this? Well, Verses 6 through 8, Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher and Oz also joined them. And if you're not terribly familiar with your ancient Near Eastern geography, that's everybody. That's every surrounding border around Israel. They are enemies. They are conspiring. They are working against us. They're going to destroy us. And in the midst of this, there is anger. Verse 13, O oh God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. Destroy them, he's saying. Bring them to nothing. So we see there's a similar mood here, isn't there? There are threats all around. There is anger because we have enemies. But we see a different trajectory in this psalm, one that, that provides us with a different response to the same scenario. Because like our nation, the people of Israel were a people who were feeling threatened. They were feeling angry. They were feeling overwhelmed, perhaps even pessimistic, just waiting for the next bad thing to happen. But here we have a different way forward. And the key distinction I'd want us to tell us is the difference about where God is found in the speech and in this song. Many people who were analyzing the speech Thursday noted its almost complete lack of reference to God apart from the very end. And that's unusual even for political convention speeches. It's not atypical for our time, right? In some ways, I think this was an expression of our age. We have problems and we need to fix them and God is an afterthought at best. And that's the thing that makes what we heard Thursday and what I would want to say is in general the mood of our time very different from what we have here in this anger-filled psalm. Because this psalm begins in prayer, O oh God, do not keep silence. 
And it ends with a longing that God be glorified. And everywhere in between, God is at the center. And so we see two responses to enemies, a God-absent response and a God-centered response. And with these two differences, I want us to note three distinct differences in terms of how we act. That is, there is a difference in how we view our enemies, a difference in how we are angry with our enemies, and a difference in how we conceive of victory with our enemies. First, let's, let's consider how we see um, difference when it comes to how we view our enemies. See, in the, in the God-absent response, it's us against them. Whereas the God-centered response, it's evil against God. Us against them. You know, when we get attacked, when we get wronged, the most natural response is in that moment to get tunnel vision, to focus on what is happening, on how we have been wronged, and that becomes everything. That's the only thing that we see in our lives. I think that's kind of what we felt a little bit if you were listening to the speech, that the, the us-against-them narrative is everything. Right now, we have this to deal with and nothing else matters. Perhaps you've experienced this firsthand. Perhaps you can think of a time where someone has said something hurtful to you, where you felt attacked, or you feel like someone has betrayed you, and, and in the wake of that, all you can think about is what you wish you could have said to the person when they said that or how you're going to say something to them, or, or, or wondering what, or maybe you're hoping in some ways for their downfall. You get this tunnel vision where it just becomes this focus of us against them and nothing else matters. Have you ever felt like that? Well, that's, that's our natural response. But in this psalm, we see a different, a, a, an opening of the wide angle lens to see what's going on as part of something bigger. As, as something about evil against God himself. There's something really interesting I found in the first few verses, and I've been thinking about it all week. Um, so at the very beginning where he says, God, do not keep silence. Now why does he say do not keep silence? Because your enemies, not our enemies, your enemies make an uproar. Verse 5 makes it even more explicit. They conspire with one accord. Against you, they make a covenant. Now, it's not like these nations were all, I hate God, I'm going to try to destroy God. That wasn't their conscious thought. But what, what this person, the psalmist, is realizing is that this is not just in us against them. This is not just some people against me. What's actually going on is evil itself embodied or being agented by these people. Evil itself is attacking, and it's not just attacking us. God is being attacked. What, what he understands is what we can sometimes forget, and that is our lives are part of a much bigger story than just me against whoever's attacking me. There is a cosmic battle that is taking place. Evil is real. I mean, we can forget that. We think it's just human forces, but evil is real, and the demonic forces that are the agents of evil are real. 
And the thing about evil is that it has one overriding desire above all else, and that is to undo, to oppose that which is of God. So God is supremely for righteousness and justice, and so evil pursues oppression and injustice and racism. God is love, so evil and Satan and the demonic forces pursue hatred. God is the source of life. Evil brings about death. And it's not just that evil seeks to bring down things, but evil is opposed to people, those who bear God's image. Supremely, evil stands against the people who bear God's name, God's people. Throughout history, we can see that the people who represent God are like this lightning rod where, where evil, where Satan is, is attacking again and again. So in the Old Testament, you have a situation like this right here where God's people are surrounded and they know they're being attacked from every side because evil is against them. Or we see it most supremely in Jesus. Jesus, the one who represents God's face to the world, means the world attacks Jesus and kills him. The early church, Rome and Israel, were attacking. Now we see it in, say, North Korea and Sudan. Again and again, we see that where God's name is professed, where God is represented, it becomes this focal point for evil to attack and to destroy. And so here's the point here that this person's realizing when he's saying they're after you. When you and I are attacked. And this is not just, there's sometimes that things can happen to us and it's just bad things and it's not like there's an enemy, it's just things happen. But there are sometimes that we are wronged. When you are wronged, it's not just a person who is hurting you. You are part of something bigger where evil is attacking God himself. I remember a number of years ago when I was in Amsterdam, I was having this uh, conversation with a couple people I just met, two of them from Germany. And we talked about a number of things, but eventually it came to us talking about Christianity. And, you know, I was this lonely college student who wasn't certain of himself. And they were very sure of themselves, and they mocked me mercilessly. And I remember at the end just feeling like I had failed, like it was, I was in misery. I just, it was, I was empty. I think it would have helped if I had realized that this wasn't just a situation of them against me, but that I was a part of something bigger that is taking place. That when they were mocking me, they weren't just mocking me, they were attacking God. They were in some ways embodying, they were representing the forces of evil in that moment. To recognize that can give us perspective and help us to see bigger beyond the moment, and it can be really comforting. Think about what he is saying here in the psalm when he says they are attacking you and they're attacking us. Think of how comforting that actually is. Elsewhere in Zechariah, uh, it says that those who touch my people, God says, touch the apple of my eye. New Testament, when, when Jesus confronts Saul, who will become Paul, he says, why are you persecuting me? Because God so identifies with his people that to attack his people is to attack God. If I were to give like the Godfather translation of this, God is saying in scripture, you mess with my people, you mess with me. That, that's truly what scripture is saying. Now, isn't that an amazing thought? 
in the movie Batman Begins, which continues to be the best superhero movie ever, there is this one moment where Rachel Dawes, you know, one of the lawyers, she's facing these bad guys, and these bad guys just kind of run away in fear. And for a moment, she thinks it's because just she's so terrifying, but she doesn't realize that right behind her is Batman, and Batman is the one who's scaring them off. Well, for you and for me, we don't realize this, but in every moment of our day, whether we're being attacked or not, God... God himself is with you. The very force of God, the power of God is on your side. When you are being attacked, they are attacking God. Now that's significant. When we face threats, when we face enemies, we can see conflict differently. We can see beyond the moment to realize that evil is attacking God. And that gives us perspective. Well, not only does it cause us to see our enemies differently, but when we see God at the center of this, we also are called to be angry differently. Now, notice how I'm saying this. Anger can be a very godly emotion. I mean, anger is filled, I mean, this passage is filled with anger. So you have, oh God, make them like dust. That is not an anger-free statement. And it's appropriate to be angry. Because anger is just the counterpart of love. If you love someone and they are wrongly attacked, you are going to be angry. If not, there's something wrong with you. It would be the strangest thing in the world if you are a parent and you go, oh, my child is being tormented by that bully. Huh. And that's all you felt, apathy. That's not love. Love would mean that you would be angry because you love your child. Anger in its right place is a godly emotion. We were created with a full spectrum of emotions, including anger. And in doing so, that actually causes, that's one aspect in which we reflect God, who himself is a God who gets angry at sin and injustice. In fact, there are some times that we aren't angry where we should be, where we're apathetic when we see oppression and poverty and racism, and we should get angry because anger is an outflowing of love. And that's what we see here. He is angry because he loves God and he loves God's people, and so he is righteously angry. The issue about anger is not that anger in and of itself is bad. It's what we do with our anger, right? I mean, Ephesians says, in your anger do not sin. Our response to anger can be where we find sin. Specifically, the issue can be whether we allow anger to be our master or we keep God as our master. Because anger can become a sort of idol where we let anger be the one that reigns, that that drives us. Have we ever, you've probably given yourselves over to rage and for that period where you have rage is everything and God is in the background and rage is your master. Or, Or there can be times where it's, it's more subtle, but it's just this slow-building bitterness where even though we know God would want us to let go of it, we will not. We are still letting ourselves be mastered by, by our anger. And, and let me say, I, honestly, I, I think that's part of what we saw on Thursday in the speech for those who paid attention, where anger is like, I am angry, we are angry, and we are going to do whatever it takes. The reality is anger is a terrible 
And there's only one right way of dealing with anger. And we're called to a different way of dealing with anger. And that's what we see here. We are called to entrust our anger to God. We have here before us what is sometimes called an imprecatory psalm. See, Bible scholars like using all sorts of fancy words. And this is just a fancy word for saying those psalms that are praying for bad things for other people. And again, if we look at it, we see it really clearly. Verse 13 and following, My God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountain ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. He is clearly praying for his enemies being destroyed and filled with terror. And it's hard for us sometimes to know what to do with this. Because we know Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And we'll get to that in in a moment because that is clearly part of the truth of how we're supposed to think this through. But what passages like these are doing, these imprecatory psalms are helping to show us how we can deal with our anger in a godly fashion. They are guiding our anger, channeling it in the way that it is supposed to go. One writer by the name of Miroslav Volf wrote that these imprecatory psalms teach us that rage belongs before God. When we pray, rage belongs before God and not in the reflectively managed and manicured form of confession, but even as an outburst from the depths of the soul. By placing unintended rage before God, we place both our unjust enemy and our own vengeful self face to face with God, who loves and does justice. As another person put it, the cursing psalms are the vehicle whereby we yield to God our own claim to vengeance. See, it's right for us to be angry. It's right for us to be angry when we're wronged, when we see injustice. But it needs to be angry in such a way that God continues to be our Lord and Master. And so when we are praying our anger before God, we're saying, Lord, I am angry. I entrust this anger to you. Lord, I am really, really bothered. And we pray, and rightly so, Lord, expose their unrighteousness. Humble them in their arrogance. By praying these things, we're saying, Lord, I trust my anger to you. You deal as you see fit. We bring together the truthfulness and legitimacy of our anger and the lordship of our God. If you have been wronged, deeply wronged, maybe it's at work and you know that there is someone who is consistently trying to undermine you and you don't even know why, but they are against you. Or maybe you have experienced abuse, physical or or sexual, or verbal, or emotional abuse. It is right for you to be angry. It is godly for you to be angry. And what you are called to do is to pray, to pray that anger before God. It is right for you to pray that your enemy would be exposed and humbled and brought to justice. Those are godly desires. And you are surrendering them to God. And and God says to us, 
vengeance is mine. And that says two really important things. On one hand, it's saying it's God's, not ours. We have to surrender our longings and desires. But on the other hand, it's also saying God is going to avenge. See, as you are praying this prayer of anger, something that you should know is that as angry as you are, God is even more angry. Yes, God is a God of compassion and forgiveness. I'm not trying to negate that, but we can't take away from the fact that God hates sin. God loves justice, and he is furious at injustice. And so as we yield our anger before our enemies to God, that gives us space to deal with it rightly rather than being mastered by bitterness or rage. See, when we have God at the center, we are angry in a different way. So we see our enemies in a different way. We are angry at our enemies in a different way. And finally, we defeat or we have victory over our enemies in a different way. When, when all that you have is just you against the other person and your anger is in control, there is only one way that victory happens. And that's with them being destroyed and you being happy at their expense. It's a zero-sum game. In other words, you cannot be happy until they're miserable, and as long as they're happy, you're miserable. And again, that's the rhetoric of our day, the rhetoric of our age. What does it look like to have victory? It's for us to win. We don't win anymore. We need to win, win, win. And of course, when we're saying we need to win, 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 we're saying they need to lose, lose, lose. But there's a different way when we are able to see what's going on in our small lives as part of something bigger, with, with it being ultimately evil attacking God, and when we're able to bring our anger before God and allow him to start melting and changing our hearts, that opens us up for a new option, and that is the option of mercy and loving our enemies. Because as God refines us and changes us and gives us a new vision, he transposes our desires for vengeance into something bigger. We long for a bigger and better victory because we realize it's not just enough for this person to be brought down and us to be brought up. What we really want is evil itself to be destroyed. We want no more racism. We want no more hatred. We want no more divorce. We want no more destruction. We want evil to be destroyed. And it's not enough for us just to feel vindicated. We want God to be vindicated. We want God's name to be glorified. We want God to be worshipped. Our small desire gets lost in a bigger victory. And that's what we see in this song. Do you notice how at the very end, even as there's anger and as there's these, these prayers for destruction, there's a prayer for something even greater than that. Verse 16, fill their faces with shame so that they may seek your name, O Lord. Similarly, he prays that God would bring about their downfall so that, verse 18, they might know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high God over all the earth. He is starting at the end of this prayer as he's being refined, as he's bringing his anger before God to long for a bigger victory. And, and Jesus completely understands this. I've said before, 
I'll say again that these songs, we should always imagine them being sung by Jesus. This is Jesus' hymn book. And Jesus understood better than anyone before him that the ultimate enemy is not the enemies that surrounded him. And he had many enemies, many opposing him. But the ultimate enemy is not flesh and blood. It's evil. It's Satan. It's sin itself. And he understood that victory was not just triumphing over those people who are out to get him and them being humbled, but that God be glorified and that evil itself become undone by people turning from evil and being saved. And so knowing that he went to the cross to bring about that bigger victory, through the cross he took the power of evil away so that those who were once enslaved to evil and were uh, guilty of evil could have their guilt taken away, could have their hearts changed so that they could now be those who worship and glorify God. And that, that is incredibly important. Because the reality is we're on that evil side of the line. I mean, we, this whole time we've been thinking about this psalm as we're the ones being wronged and the evil enemies are the ones that we need to deal with. But the problem actually is, we're the enemies. Because we have wronged people. We know how we have hurt people. And we have attacked and wronged God. Romans says that we were enemies by nature against God. And so what Jesus did at the cross was he pulled us. He gave the greater victory to us so that evil no longer has power over our souls, so that our guilt no longer has power over our souls, so that we now, brought back from evil, could be part of that greater victory of those who've turned away and are now worshiping the one true glorious God. And as those who have experienced being brought from enemies to children of God, more and more our hearts can long when we see enemies for that bigger victory. Not just that they would be humbled, not just that their faults would be exposed, but that they would turn from their evil and love God. If we have been wronged, if you have been wronged, it is right to pray your anger. But open your hearts and allow God to rework it so that even as you are praying your anger, you could pray with the psalmist, you could pray with Christ, Lord, love them as you have loved us. Humble them so that you might save them. That is the greater victory, and that is the better way. Well, we are now coming to approach the table. You know, the table is historically a place where peace is declared. You do not have a meal with your enemies. When you have a meal, it is to show that there is fellowship, that warfare is over, that peace has been brought. And as we come to the table, God is declaring to us, though you might one time have been enemies, now you are family. You are welcome here. As we prepare our hearts to eat and to drink and to share in this peace, this fellowship with God, I invite you to, to take some time, if there is anger that you need to deal with. Don't let it become bitterness. Bring it before God. If there are ways that you know that you've wronged God, that you are, have been in opposition to him, confess those things at well to be, as well to be at peace before God. So let's take a couple minutes in silence to, to confess our sins, to confess where our anger has turned us wrong, and then I'll lead us in prayer to conclude. Let's pray silently.
Father, we, we don't deserve the love you have shown to us. We thank you that you have turned our hearts away from our opposition to you, that you have turned our hearts toward you, that you have reminded us that you have made us your children. And yet, Lord, we confess that we don't yet fully trust in that. We still at times turn away from you. We still at times when we are angry don't entrust you with our anger, but instead we seek to bring about vengeance on our own, whether it's through a harsh word or even just desiring another person's suffering. Lord, all that we are, we bring before you. We confess our sin, trusting that through Jesus, all of this is dealt with. And Lord, now as we turn to the table, we ask that you would again convince our hearts that we belong to you, that we are loved by you. We pray that you would so overpower us with the knowledge of your love and forgiveness that that would overflow in love and forgiveness towards those who wrong us as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, as we prepare for this, me this, this meal, hear the good news of the gospel. From Colossians, we are told, you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Friends, in Jesus, God defeated all our enemies, and your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.